But it reminds me as I've been thinking about this message of the little girl that, that she went into the pet store. She had her sweatpants on, had her sweatshirt on, she went into the pet store, and she asked the owner of the pet store if they had a dog here that had a lame leg. That if, Did you have any do- I've got a dollar here, and I'd like to buy it. And he said, Baby, you don't want to buy a, a lame dog. You know, you want a dog that you can run around with and that you can play with and that, you know, you can chase and that it can chase you. And she pulled up her sweatpants legs, and when she pulled it up, she had a prosthetic leg. She said, no, I, I need one that can keep up with me. And, uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, humility and pride, that you've got to have a certain amount of pride and you've got to have a certain amount of humility and stuff. But if I could tell you anything before we leave today is that you need more humility in your life. You need more of an abased spirit. In other words, to, to not be prideful to where you boast of yourself. You, you need less speaking to people about, I do this, and I have this, and my stuff, and my things. It needs to be more about, especially if you're a believer, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it needs to be about we and us or him, you know what I mean, and the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis wrote this about pride. Everyone probably knows who C.S. Lewis is, the Narnia, you know, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and all those things. I tend to like C.S. Lewis. He also wrote the screw tape letters talking about like the demons speaking with one another. This is what he said about pride. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered and that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, even, or excuse me, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in other people. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves and the more we have it of ourselves, the more we dislike it in everyone else. The vice that I'm talking about is pride and self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. And unchaste anger, uh, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, and it is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride destroys. The Bible even says that in Proverbs 16 and verse number 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the prideful ones that are I, 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 even Jesus said to the man who had many possessions, he said, I have many goods which I have bestowed, and I will eat, drink, and be merry, and I will be fine. And Jesus says, you fool. This night your soul would be required of you, and then whose goods are all these things going to be? God hates pride. And when I say the word hate, he hates it with the disdain of holy hatred. He does not hate people at all, the Bible teaches, but he absolutely hates pride because why? It challenges two things. Number one, it challenges God's sovereignty, and then it challenges God's will and way for our life. When we're prideful, we're saying, we don't need you, I got this. 
When we're prideful, then we are challenging even the very sovereignty of God to say that we don't deserve to go through this, and you need to do something about it. Pride tries to steal a seat of position and power that only belongs to the God of heaven. It tries to rob you and to steal you and do all these things. Even in Proverbs chapter 18, verse number 12, here comes Solomon another time with this wonderful word about pride. He said, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty or prideful, and before honor is humility. C.S. Lewis also said this right here. Listen, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down you can't see something that is above you as long as you're looking down upon people you will never ever ever see uh, the God that's above you because you're always looking down if you look at Daniel chapter number four we're going to begin with this right here Daniel begins to write this testimony of King Nebi and then he says these things right here there's a couple of things and it's just going to be uh it's just to help us to remember this okay the, there, there's certain looks that that he's looking and when you take an inventory or you do a testimony of your life what do you do you're you're looking back on things you're looking forward maybe at things you're looking at all the things around you and sometimes it would be good for us to take an inventory and go all right did I mess up that day? Did I do those things? Did we evaluate our lives? And Nebuchadnezzar is at the end of the words being spoken about him in Daniel, and he takes an end toward it. The first thing he does is he looks backward. First of all, before you can ever look at where you are right now, before you can look at where you're going to be heading, sometimes you need to look backwards. Sometimes you don't need to dwell in that past or in that backwardness, you know, in that backward thought, but you need to look backward to really appreciate how you've gotten to where you are now. And if you really want to understand, if you look backward in your life, I'm going to tell you one word that sums up where you are now by looking back, and that's God's grace, period. He says in verse number 1, look with me, Daniel chapter 4, verse number 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Look at these words of Nebi. He says, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Now, I don't know about y'all, but back in the 80s, we used to watch a show, and, and uh, that little bitty boy, you know, uh, uh, the young boy, uh, Gary Cooper, I think was his name, he, he would look and go, what are you talking about, Willis? You know, because he didn't understand what was going on. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. Did anybody that's been here in the last three weeks or four weeks, because we had Easter service a different style, in those four weeks, we do not ever read that King Nebi ever said anything about peace be multiplied unto you. Look at that verse one again. This is not King Nebuchadnezzar, in, in what we know of him. This guy is the guy that told them, I make a decree. I pa pass a law that if you do not bow to me, that I am going to cut you into pieces. <laughs> and most of you think, well, maybe that was just a metaphor. Maybe that was just a imagery that he was using. No, it wasn't. 
King Nebuchadnezzar was known for being chaotic and crazy in his thought process. And when they came in and took over nations or over empires, they literally ransacked everything and destroyed it so that it wouldn't rear its head back up. And Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't worship me last week, last Sunday, if you don't worship me, then I'm going to cut you into pieces. I'm going to burn your houses down and I'm going to take the ashes from the, the burn pile and throw it on the dung pile. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. And now in this chapter, we come out, Brother Craig, and it's like Nebuchadnezzar the king, to people, all people, nations and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. And you can, the people's got to be going, who is this? You know what I mean? And even some people and some scholars have thought, well, Daniel is writing this, so Daniel may have influenced this way. That's not true. Daniel is being dictated to. He's writing down what King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to share and trying to say. And all he is doing is translating from the Aramaic, the Chaldean, or Babylonian language. And he's writing these things down in that same language so that people would know that Nebuchadnezzar had an encounter with God. He had an encounter with humility. The most prideful man that we've read about in the book of Daniel now faces humility, Brother Mitch. And here he is. He says, peace be multiplied unto you. It's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar has to make that statement in the beginning for people to go, all right, is he going to pass another decree? Is he going to kill us all? Is he going to burn our houses? Is he going to throw it on the dung pile? Is he going to do all this? And Nebuchadnezzar's going, look, peace be to you. You know who this reminds me of? It reminds me of thousands of years down the road by a man by the name of Paul, whose Hebrew name was Saul, who persecuted the church, who had Christians killed, who was standing at the stoning of Stephen and holding the coats of all the adults that were throwing stones at Stephen and killed him that day. And in almost every one, Brother Ronald, every gospel that Paul writes, every epistle he gives to the church, he begins it and ends it always with peace be unto you. The peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be unto you. And here Nebuchadnezzar is, the guy who was so psychotic last week, is saying, peace be multiplied unto you. And he said, I thought that it was good for me to show you the wonders of the Most High God and what he's wrought toward me and how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. St. Augustine said this, if you plan to build tall houses of virtue, you must first lay deep foundations of humility. And what happened is that Nebuchadnezzar had that reversed in his life. You remember I told you that even years ago in the war in Iraq in the 90s that Saddam Hussein himself declared that he was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. It was his role model and his hero. It was his patriarch that he looked to, kind of like the Jews looked to Abraham. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein looked in that same way to where he even built his palace at the palace where Nebuchadnezzar's was. And he had that huge role model, but he never come to the conclusion and understanding, evidently, Saddam Hussein had never read Daniel chapter 4. Or no one ever explained it to him because Nebuchadnezzar only had the mindset to destroy the people and nations, to pass decrees that if you don't believe in me and you don't trust in me and you don't really literally bow down and worship me, then I would gas your own people. 
That was the kind of evil that was in his mind. But Augustine said that if you're going to build tall structures of virtue, something that's good to hold on to, you better dig foundations of humility deep and not prideful things. Let me share something else that C.S. Spurgeon, or or not C.S., but C.H. Spurgeon. We're on the C.S. Lewis thing. Listen to what Spurgeon said about it. This is really good. Never was there a poorer man than Christ. He was the prince of poverty. Look at his dress. It is woven from the top throughout the garment of the poor. It was the undergarment of the priesthood. As for his food, he oftentimes did hunger and was always dependent upon the charity of other people for the relief of his wants. He who scattered the harvest over the broad acres of the world sometimes did not even have anything to eat to keep the pains of hunger back. He who digged the springs of the oceans sat upon a well and asked a Samaritan woman for something to drink. He rode no chariot, but yet he walked in his weary way, foot sore over the flints and hills of Galilee. He looked to the fox as it hurried to its resting place, and he said these words, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but I, the Son of God, have no place to lay my head. The one who had been waited on by angels in heaven takes a towel and girds himself to wash the disciples' feet. The one who was honored with the hallelujahs from the choruses of heaven of all ages is now spit upon and despised. You know why? Because Jesus humbled himself. Jesus, when he came, laid deep foundations of humility. They mocked him, they spit on him, they blasphemed him, they slapped him, they did all of these things to him, and Jesus spoke not a word against him. He could have called down, the Bible says, 10,000 angels to take him from that pain, but he did not do it, but yet the first thing he said when they nailed him on the cross, the very first thing that came out of his mouth was not, oh, I'm thirsty, although that is one of them. It wasn't, woman, behold your son, and son, behold thy mother, The first thing he said when he was on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. You know why? Because as that cross was lifted up and it landed in that hole that those Romans dug, Brother Lee, and it shuddered the body of Jesus with pain as those nails were torn and as his body was convulsing and trying to breathe, they may have thought that that was a deep hole, but the humility that Jesus laid and the foundation that no other man can lay, amen, was in humility and humbleness. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar looked backward on his life. And as he looks backward on his life, I hope and my prayer is is that he continually saw his pride. He was full of pride. So full of pride that it actually is going to take him and destroy him. But then Nebuchadnezzar did this. Now he looks outward. (laughs) So many times when we look backwards, then we're looking at the present. We kind of look at what we have that's before us. What's around us and what's, what's on the outside of us and what we have in our hands grasp. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse number 4. We'll read to verse number 9. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house. I love that. You know why? I know that the King James says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house. In pole barn terminology, because that's who we are at this church, country terminology, he says, I was minding my own business. That's basically what he said. I, I was minding my own business. He says, and I was flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head 
troubled me. That's almost like, it sounds like Dr. Seuss a little bit, doesn't it? You know, the dream made me afraid. The thoughts upon my bed and my head and the visions of my head troubled me, right? And I knew that I may be dead. He says in this next verse, therefore, I made a decree. Wait a minute. Nebi looks back, and if he looks back, we can just look back two chapters and see that he's had dreams before. But if we look back, we know that maybe it's a 20-year span or another 20 years have passed, 40 years, whatever has passed in time in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He has this horrible dream. The next verses should read this right here, and I called Daniel unto me. It should, you, you would think that, but it doesn't. This guy was so wrapped up in the government and passing laws to help him in his times of trouble that as soon as he woke up from his dream, he said, therefore, I made a decree to bring in all the wise men and all of them of Babylon before me that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. Why? Why? Because they could not interpret the dream. And he should know that by looking backward. They, didn't, they weren't able to tell it before. So why didn't he learn from that? Because he was wrapped up in everything that was outward of him. He was wrapped up in his own pride and his own law and his own government. And he depended on that government to protect him and to save him from everything that was bad or everything that could happen. And you can't do that. You can't do that today. There's no one that sits in Congress. Congress, no one that sits in the White House, no one that sits in Alabama and Montgomery, there's no one that sits in this church that can help you other than Jesus, other than God Almighty helping you. Listen, when it comes time and you stand beside the casket of someone, the White House may send you a letter of condolences or benevolence and give you something. The church may prepare a food uh, meal for you because it seems like that's how we comfort people who have lost someone. We make casseroles and and, and sweet potato pies, and we, we try to southernly soothe their hearts over and stuff. But you ask anybody that's ever stood by the casket, of a loved one ever stood by the bedside of someone who is dying and I'm telling you there's no letter with a presidential seal that will ever comfort your heart. There's no sweet potato pie with a dollop of Cool Whip on it that will ever satisfy your heart. It might satisfy your stomach but not your heart other than the grace of God that we need in that time. And Nebuchadnezzar just couldn't figure that out. And he calls all the magicians, soothsayers, astrologers, and the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans being his uh, intellectual group that he calls in. But then look at this verse right here. It says, but at the last, Daniel came in before me. You know what I mean? I don't know about y'all, but I would have probably called him first. He says, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name, and look at what Neb says, name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Prideful or pride-filled people will always struggle at being taught something. If someone has pride, you can't teach them. They already know it, and you can't teach them. This is the second time he calls them in. I put this in my notes. Could it be this, that Nebuchadnezzar was so prideful and so resistant to everyone and everything that the only time God could speak to him was when he was asleep? 
You're a prideful person if God can't even talk to you during the daytime and has to give you a dream. You know what I mean? He was pride-filled, and he couldn't be taught. <clears throat> if he was taught, then he would have known that God is troubling his heart again, that God is stirring, Brother Ricky, his heart again, and that he needed God's man and not government to help him, an intellectual, that he needed God to help him in this time, but he was so prideful that he couldn't be taught. Pride and conceitedness is an absolute destroyer of understanding because those that are prideful will not let you come in and teach them anything. Listen, we learn about prideful people before we jump on the bandwagon and start beating everybody up. All of us at some time or another are prideful. Some of us at some time or another are pride-filled. Even in the scripture, the Bible says in Matthew chapter number 26 about a pride-filled man by the name of Peter, which was one of the disciples of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 33. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. We know that these words right here are Jesus before he is going to the cross. He is about to be, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've had the Last Supper. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're praying. And he says, listen, some of you would be offended because of me. And Peter, in pride, said, I'll never be offended of you. And look at what Jesus answered him in the next verse, 34. Jesus said unto him, verily, I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me three times. Can you imagine Peter? Peter was always inserting shoe into mouth because of pride. Pride has a way of doing that for us. Jesus was making a statement of that you will all be offended of me. Peter could not accept that because he couldn't be taught that. He said, could not accept that. He said, I'll never be offended of you. He, he even told Jesus, I'll go with you even in prison, even unto death. And Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning, buddy. And you say, I wonder what happened, Brother Steve. I'm glad you asked that. Look at chapter 26, verse 74. Then began he, Peter, to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. This is the third time someone has accused Peter of being a Galilean and, be Galilean and been with Jesus. And he began to curse and to swear and said, I don't know the man. Here again comes the pride of Peter and immediately the cock crowed, or crowed, right? Crew. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Why did he go out and weep bitterly? Because he was humbled by a rooster. Maybe not the rooster. He was humbled by the words of Jesus. And over in Israel today, there is a huge, there is a chapel of the, they call the flagellation where Jesus was beat and these things. And outside that chapel, we were sitting there one day just resting a little bit, trying to catch our breath from the heat, get us a little bit of water. And I looked up and there is a statue of Peter and there are people that are around him. And up at the very top above him, it's a big old huge statue, is a rooster. And I looked at that thing and I said, you've been telling on us so long, you know. That's why we eat fried chicken every Sunday because we're getting you back, right? But it had that up there and you looked at it and it was like, man, you think about right here somewhere, this is where Peter's pride got a hold of him. And that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He begins to look outward to find help. And that's actually kind of things that we're told today. 
We're told by Dr. Phil and Oprah's and all these other things that, that the help, we're, we're all a village trying to raise one person and stuff like that, and we're all doing this together. But let me share something with you, and don't get upset with me. But there are times that your daddy and your mama and your wife and your husband or even your children are not going to be able to comfort you in the way that you need comfort. They will love you, but ask them. They will not even know the words to tell you sometimes. They'll not know how to say it to you. They'll be able to put their arms around you and physically hug you and embrace you, but they still won't be able to heal the broken heart that's there that only God can help. So Nebuchadnezzar looked backward, he looked outward, and now look at this, in pride he looks downward. Remember we talked about what C.S. Lewis said, the one that's always looking downward will never look up, right? He's looking downward. Look at verse number 10, and we're going to go through these quick. There's a lot of scriptures to cover. Are you still you glad to be here? Amen. Me too. No matter how long it takes to preach, I'm glad to be here. Look at verse 10. It says, There were visions of my head in my bed, and I saw, it says, And behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong. And the height thereof reached all the way up into heaven. And you say, what would this mean, brother? See, even in this dream reaching up to heaven, it's the the typology or the imagery of of Babylon. You remember, Babylon didn't start when Nebi took over, but it started in Genesis chapter 10 when they built a tower of Babel. And they were trying to, Brother Edward, build their way all the way up to heaven. They they built it with a ziggurat while they smoked the cigarettes, right? And, you know, they went all the way up. And what they were doing, they were saying, God is not big enough enough to come down to us. We must build a tower up to him so that he can come down and visit. And they were also trying to be taller and higher. Remember, the flood had just happened. And after that flood, they were trying to devise a man-made way of not ever perishing again. And so they devised together to build a great tower and to go all the way up to heaven. And now Nebuchadnezzar, in his dream, it says that this tree reached all the way up into heaven. And the side of it, look at what it says, and the side thereof was to the ends of all the earth the leaves thereof were fair and the fruit thereof was much and in it was meat for all the beasts of the fields had shadow under it or shade and the fowls of heaven dwelt in the bows thereof and all the flesh was fed of it i saw in the visions of my head upon my bed and behold a watcher a holy one came down from heaven and cried aloud and said this or that thus hew down the tree Cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit, lest the beast that, excuse me, let the beast get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field. It says, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from a man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him. Wow. Let it be changed and let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times or seven years pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers that and the demand of the word or by the word of the holy ones. You notice those words? Isn't it funny that Nebuchadnezzar passed decree after decree after decree and now a holy angel, holy messenger of God comes down and says that this is by the decree of the Holy One, the Holy Watchers, right? And it was like, Nebuchadnezzar, you think your man-made or earthly-made decrees are good? Here's one from heaven. And he says these words right here. 
The reason that this is being done is to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the beasts of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, or Daniel, declare the interpretation thereof. For as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the Spirit of the holy gods is in thee. And look at these words. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, according to their language. That wasn't his name. You remember we talked about this. Daniel means that God is my judge. Belteshazzar means that Baal is my God, or Baal is my judge. And he was saying, no, that's not your name. But that's what Nebi called him. It says that Daniel, because of this dream, he says he was astonished. He said he was just in shock for one hour, and his thoughts began to trouble him. The king spake and said to Belteshazzar, Let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. And what he's saying is, he said, I wish this dream was to everyone else, to all of your enemies. But he says, The dream is to you. Look at what he says. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, and his heights reached unto heaven, And the sight thereof was to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and it was meat for all, and the beasts of the field dwelt underneath it, and and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their their habitation. He said, it is you, O king. (laughs) Right? Did he say, it is you, O king, or did he go, it's you, you, O king? Did his voice shake? I mean, he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar again, but we've got to remember, Daniel was a man of faith. Daniel had faith enough to tell Ashpenaz, we can't eat the meat and drink the wine from the king's table. Can you please give us water and vegetables or pulse? Can you do that for us? And he had faith enough to know God would answer. Daniel was a man of faith knowing that he would interpret the first dream in Daniel chapter number 2 if he was just faithful to God that God was going to take care of him and God did it. Daniel was not only faithful in Daniel chapter number 2, but even three boys, three young men that had been influenced by Daniel, but very much more influenced by the the God of Daniel, they all stood on faith and said, we're not going to bow down and worship the golden image no matter what music is played. And and, and listen, I don't even care if you bring a banjo out. I'm not bowing, you know, not doing those things. And so here we are now, and Daniel's troubled in his spirit for an hour about this interpretation and King Nebi says, don't be troubled, just tell me what it is. And he begins to spit out the dream. And he says, he says, King, I wish that it was to your enemies and to those that despise you and hate you and stuff. And he said, but the tree that you saw, he said, it's you, King. And isn't this familiar to when Nathan, the prophet, came to David and said, you're the man. Isn't it familiar to what Jesus told that, that one that had all the possessions? You remember, you foolish man, you fool, tonight your soul would be required of thee. Isn't it good for us to speak to one another and be honest and open with one another? The Bible says in Proverbs that, that uh, open rebuke is better than secret love. It, it's better to uh, speak to people when we have divisions with one, and them, uh, with one another than to hold it back and secretly say that we love, but there's a problem there. Open up our mouth and let's speak the truth. And when you do, speak it with seasoned grace all over it, amen? And Daniel did that. He said, King, he said, it's you. He says, O King, or excuse me, let me find my place right here. He said, it is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reached unto the heaven and dominion uh, to the end of the earth. 
He said, and whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, hew down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth and with a band of iron and brass, let it grow in the tender grass of the field and let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times or seven years pass over him. He, Daniel says this, this is the interpretation, the interpretation uh, uh, O king. He says, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. And look at these words. They shall drive thee from men. And thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. And they shall wet, uh, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven until seven years pass over thee. Seven times pass over thee. Till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. He says, God says that this is going to pass over you. It's going to happen to you until you come to the understanding that God rules over all kingdoms and over all government. And he says, and he will give it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, he says, thou kingdom shall be sure unto thee after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. And he says, wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee. And look at these words. Break off the sins, <coughs> excuse me, thy sins by righteousness. Break off the iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. If it may be lengthening of thy tranquility. He said, repent. <clears throat> he said, God has given this dream, and this will happen to you, but he says, if you'll listen to the counsel, if you will listen to the words and accept them and, and understand them and receive them, he said, and also you'll break by righteousness. And he couldn't break off his sins by his own righteousness. It had to be the righteousness of God. And he says, and if you'll get rid of your iniquity by doing what? Showing mercy. And, and iniquity is just like trespass. And you remember we told you that trespasses when it comes to sin, it's just like the no trespassing signs that we see on land and other things. It, there's a law that's stated and you don't over, overbound or jump over those laws or, or, or disregard or ignore those laws. And if you do that, you have iniquity in your heart because you knew better. And so what he's saying is, is Nebuchadnezzar stopped passing decrees and listened to the law of God and show mercy to the poor that if it may be it may be this is put away from you and listen the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar is warned once again this is the second time that King Nebi has been warned and listen he is so filled with pride will he ever hear it well we'll learn it in this next statement Nebuchadnezzar looked backward he looked outward he looks downward in his pride but look he looks inward and this is what we're told. This is what the, you're told today by every talk show host, by every good soothsayer, that the power is within you. The power, and in order for you to be you and a better you, it's all about you, and you must strengthen you and you and you. And do you see this? It's over and over. And the whole time when we're in those problems, when we're in this place where we need grace and we need help and we need something to help us, we're being told by the world that you have it. It's in you. Stir it up. You have it. The power's within you. The power is that you need to meditate. You need peace of mind. You need this. You need to stretch. You need yoga. You need all these things. You need to get in touch with yourself over and over. And the whole thing is, is this is our statement. I need help. And then people say, you are the answer. In which we should respond back with, no, you don't understand. I don't know what to do.
So if I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do with all of myself. I don't know what to do. I need something else. And then you're moved to a next phase in great psychology today that it is outward and that you need it from Brian will help you and and Keith will help you and Patty will help you and that that's your answer. When you're looking inward all the time and you're looking downward all the time, if you look inward, you're going to see those good things about you. People... People argue with me over if this is the infallible Word of God or not. I'm not talking about just this translation. I'm talking about the Word of God, the original text, and Textus Receptus, and word for word from the Greek, from the uh, Aramaic, from the Hebrew. They argue about if it's the Word of God or not because they say these words. Men penned it down. So if men wrote it down, then there has to be errors in there. If you look at this, not only is it a miracle that it is the inspired, breathed Word of God, you would also find it a miracle that men push themselves out of the way because there's no man that's ever in this book that ever gives themselves glory and pride other than wicked people like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, and that's because that's the storyline. But there's no one in here. Paul says this. Paul, the apostle, of all people could have said, I am doing the right thing. I am God's man, and he's using me. And you know what he chose to say instead of that? He said, of all the sinners, I am chief. I'm the biggest sinner of them all, right? So when you look at this book, this doesn't lift mankind up, men or women or humanity. It actually shows us every one of our flaws. It's actually an image, and it shows back in us. I heard a preacher say the other day, I think it was Steve Gaines saying the other day, about a story about a man in Tennessee in the mountains, and he went out in the woods, and he found a a mirror. When he found the mirror, he looked at the mirror, and he went, well, there's Pappy. There's my daddy. You know, he put it in his pocket and he walked back and he went home and stuck it under the bed. And all the, all the time he'd go in there under that bed and pull it out and he'd go, there's daddy. There's Pappy. And it was the whole time he was looking at himself, just like what this word does. If we want to become more like Christ and more like Jesus, it's going to take much more than a bracelet that says WWJD. You're going to have to get in the B-I-B-L-E and you're going to have to understand who Jesus is. One night that man's wife went in there. She thought that he was cheating on her because he'd get something out from under the bed and he'd go out for hours and hours out into the woods. And she went in there and got that mirror out from under the bed and she said, well, that's the old hussy he's running around with. <laughs> Y'all figure that out later when you go home. <clears throat> he looks inward. When he looks inward... Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Look at what he says. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. It all happened. And you look at the next verses. Why? Because God wasn't ready to forgive him. No, God is ready to forgive. His ear is not deafened and his hand is not shortened that it can't reach down to anybody. But look at why all these things happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 29. At the end of the 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon and king spake and said, Is this... Not the great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom. It says, by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar goes out and he looks inward. He said, I did all these things. I built this place. I built this wonderful city of Babylon that they said you could, you could actually stack eight chariots wide across its towers on the outside edges and on the walls. He says, is this not what I've done? And the Bible says, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. There fell judgment from heaven, saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. 
The kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven years shall pass over thee until you know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. His hairs grew like eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. He said, Brother Steve, how in the world could that have ever happened to someone? There's actually a condition today. It's not a physical disease, but it is a psychological disease called bonotherapy. Bonotherapy. And what it means is, or boanotherapy. And it, what it means is, is there's an actual psychological breakdown that in suffering of depression, suffering of just discouragement can actually come not only in that, but bipolarism can cause these things too. That people have been driven, and this label is labeled upon them to where they have mindset been driven so mad by the thoughts of their mind that they actually believe that they are cattle. And that's nothing to like mock or to laugh at, but it is a condition of people's thoughts of their minds. Or as this scripture says here, he said, they will drive you. They will force you. They will do this. And pride is stemmed out from the demons of hell. And he was saying, the thoughts of your mind and your pridefulness, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to drive you crazy and actually do this. You're going to show on the outside to the world for seven years what you've always been inwardly he says it's going to come out on the outside and you know that if you continue along that path that eventually eventually people are going to see who you really are that's what happened to king nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar started going out and lived out in the field eating grass for seven years and the bible says they did all these things but then the last thing is this brother brandon you go ahead and come on the last thing is this nebuchadnezzar looked all those different places when he could have avoided these things. Or the wrong, he could have avoided these things by doing one thing, and that is he should have looked in this place first. He looked backward, he looked outward, he looked downward, he looked inward, he did all those things. Because why? Just like the woman that had an issue of blood for 12 years. She tried everything that she could. She wasted all of her money on every doctor, but they did not make her condition better. As a matter of fact, the gospel says that it became worse. But one day, she knew within her heart, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. And that doesn't mean just the sewn area of his garment. What that meant was, is if I could touch the corner, or in the Hebrew word, the kanopf. If I could touch the kanopf of his garment. And you say, what is that? It means wing. She said, if I could just get over there and get under his wing, I know that I'd be made whole. So much that she believed that with so much virtue and power that when she touched Jesus, he felt the power released from him. And he said, who touched me? And the disciple says, what you talking about, Jesus? There's people all around. Hey, you're going to ask us who touched you? Look at the mob. And he said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I know a lot of people have touched me, but this person touched me. Amen. And something happened because she knew that she could be healed. If Nebuchadnezzar would have just done this, looked upward, he could have bypassed all of that. All of that pain of pride. All of those years, seven years of living as a beast and an animal, he could have done this. And this is the story and testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. That's why he saved it to the end of Daniel chapter number four. Look what he says. And at the end of the days... 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes to heaven. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven. You know how many people, you know how many people tell me all the time when they get saved, especially if they're over 40 and they get saved? You know how many times I hear from them, they say, I wish I'd have got saved when I was younger. I wish I'd have, got, I wish I'd have given my life to the Lord younger. You know why? Because they, they want to bypass a lot of the hurt that pride caused them and the sinful things. But also they have this desire and feeling that, man, if I'd have gotten saved earlier, I would know a little bit more about him and I'd have a little better uh, foothold on all these things and stuff and know who I could go to. You know, I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar ever thought, I wish I'd have, <laughs> after that first dream, I'd have surrendered it all. But you know what? Let me say something to you. If you were saved over 40 or 50 or if you were saved at 18, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> Let me say this to you. It really doesn't matter when you got saved. It doesn't matter when you called on the name of the Lord just as long as you have. You may think you need to be doing some kind of catch-up, and you don't. Because, look, in this testimony, Nebuchadnezzar said, finally, I lifted up my eyes. You know, I have a story to share. I have a testimony to share. I had some crazy things happen to me even while I was in sin and, and drinking and doing things wrong. I had things happen, and I don't normally share them with everybody. And the reason I don't like to share some of those things where I know God was speaking to me in those moments is because I don't want you to take my story and my testimony and try to go, well, well, that didn't happen to me. Am I saved? It didn't happen that way to me. Well, you know, I look at it like this way. My wife was saved, and I, I, was, I, was, I was just an idiot. I really was. I was a lost idiot, lost kid, you know. Dad preaching and doing all that. My wife, you know, doing every, well, not at that time. She was uh, just somebody at school back then and doing all this stuff. She was saved on her bed when she was like 18 years old. And <clears throat> I was saved when I was 18 years old. And so my testimony was this crazy radical testimony, Daniel, where it was like going this way one day and totally going the other way the other day. Patty's testimony was like, hey, I was going to church my whole life, singing my whole life, and I'm still going to church and singing, you know. So the testimony was not like this huge change thing. And she'll tell you, she struggled a lot of times, especially in the first year of our marriage, with doubting salvation because she was like, you're so moved you're, you, you, when you speak and you, you weep and all these things. And, 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 and I've always loved the Lord, and I, and, and I knew I needed to be saved that day, but there was not this big, huge thing. And she would always talk about, like, your testimony is so great. And, what, and I look at her and I go, are you crazy? The testimony of this, I was an idiot and I lived a sinful life and I did these horrible things. That's a good testimony? No. And the reason I don't share some of the things that God spoke to me, and I know he spoke to my heart about it, even thoughts in my mind that he gave me when I was lost, and the reason is is because of this. I was so prideful that it took more stuff. Just like Daniel. Daniel believed in God and didn't have to have a dream to believe in him. Nebuchadnezzar was such a moron, an idiot, and couldn't get things right that not only did he get one dream to scare him half to death, but he had two dreams to scare him half to death. So those of you that are talking about all these great things that happened to you, I'm, I'm just here to tell you today the truth. It's because you were so dumb that God had to speak harder. Yeah. Speak louder and do this great thing because you were so prideful. Nebuchadnezzar said at the end of those days, I'm just glad I didn't have to live as an animal for seven years. He said, I lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. He said, I blessed the Most High. This is so different from Nebi. 
This is a different... I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and a death according to His will is the, in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, Why do, or what doest thou? <clears throat> At the same time, my reasoning returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my Lord sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor, or excuse me, and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. If there is quotes from C.S. Lewis and Charles Spurgeon and, and St. Augustine and all these, this one would be King Nebuchadnezzar's quote. <laughs> he is able, those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. That would be his quote, King Nebi. That's what he would say. We need billboards with that on it. Because what he's saying is, is that those who trust in government, those who trust in themselves, those who trust in their possessions and all these things, he said, I promise you, you'll be brought low someday. And you will be humbled. The conclusion is this. We should try to look at Nebuchadnezzar and his prideful life. We don't want to be like him. But who do we want to be like? Say it louder. We want to be like Jesus. So let's compare the pride of Nebuchadnezzar to the humility of Jesus. <laughs> the humility of Jesus. He had angels serve him in heaven. Bowed down to dirty, dusty disciples' feet, and Brother Mitch chose to wash them off with his own hands that would be nailed to a cross later for their own sins. James chapter 4, verse 6 says this, He giveth grace, or excuse me, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. James chapter 4, look at verse 10, down a little bit more. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And the best advice that I could give you today is for you to humble yourselves in the sight of God before God has to humble you himself. It says in Philippians chapter 2, some of the greatest words you'll ever read about Jesus. <clears throat> it says, but he made of himself no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of mankind men. It says, and being found in fashion as a man, Look at these words. <clears throat> Jesus humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. When Jesus came, he left all of his glory, Brother Craig. He left all of that in heaven, the throne, all that stuff, to be born in a lowly manger and to do these things. We know the story of Jesus. But the humility, Miss Martha, the, the humbling story of Jesus to me is like this. He came looking for those who were lame and those who were messed up with sin. He came searching for those who needed to be saved. He even says in Luke, says, Son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Sister Patricia, he came searching for the lame, not the lame like physically, but the ones who were spiritually marred and messed up by sin. And he come to buy them, to purchase them, to redeem them, Amen. And Satan says, why would you want to do that? 
What's so special about Lee that you would want to buy him? You don't want someone like Steve or like Lee that, that lived sinful and did all that and are mangled up and marred by sin. You want someone like Craig or like Casey who have done good their whole lives. Why would you want them? But in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus did just like that little girl in the pet shop. He humbled himself. And he took upon him the form of a servant. And what he did, Brother Brian, when he was beaten and battered at the whipping post and at the cross, it's just like that little girl that said, I'm identifying, I need a dog that identifies with me, and I've come to buy that one. Jesus identified himself with us by doing what? By sinning? No. He did not sin at all. He was in all points tempted as you and I, but was without sin. But when they put him on the cross, it said, Cursed be every man that hangs upon a tree. He took the curse of the law of sin upon us, and instead of you, Edward, hanging on the cross, Jesus says, no, I'm going to identify with Edward, and he moved you, and he took your pain and penalty of sin. When he was baptized by John the Baptist in the river of Jordan, he wasn't being baptized for his sins as though he needed to repent and to be baptized. He was identifying with all of us saying that someday they're going to kill me and they'll lower my body in the grave, but I will come up. That's why the water, the Bible says straightway he came out of the water. He didn't get sprinkled. He came up out of the water. Why? To show that he's going to come up out of the grave someday. And the reason that we accept him as our Savior is because he identified with us with our mangled body and our lamed legs and our lame-brained ideas of pride and sin, and he took it all to the cross. And the reason you should accept him today is because no one will ever love you that much. No one. You shouldn't accept Jesus because, oh, I want to go walk on streets of gold and gates of pearl and all that. I want to go see Mama and Granny and all that. No, you should accept him because that's how much he loved you. And you should desire to be baptized. Why? Because that is you identifying yourself with Jesus. Someday you'll go into that lowly grave and come out. Amen. Resurrection. I'm glad. Glad that the Lord chose to walk into this earth and he didn't listen to Satan or anything else. And he didn't look outward. He didn't look inward and all that stuff. But he looked upward to the Father. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because Steve needed a Savior. He needed him really bad. And I'm telling you, as much as you may not think so, you need him just as bad as I did. And just as bad as I do. Father, we thank you. We ask you to please, Lord, speak to us. Lord, like only you can, and that is when the hearts of people, Lord, your Holy Spirit is what speaks. It's not just the pastor that is speaking those words. You're working with people. You're moving in people's hearts right now. So, Lord, I pray that you would please, please, Lord, give them the, the strength, the guts, the, the, the courage to come to you and to accept you.